Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast. Our goal is to help technical professionals accelerate their career progression, increase their job satisfaction, and bring you the advice we wish had been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, John White, at VJourneyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Corty, at NetworkNerd underscore. We both work in the tech industry with backgrounds in IT operations and sales engineering. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to career enlightenment. So let's take a trip. We also wanted to mention that our second site, graph.nerd-journey.com, is also live. That's the knowledge graph and linked notes version of our main page's show notes that we developed to make it easier to explore our episodes, guests, and topics. Thanks for joining us, dear listener. This is episode 231, and it's going to be part three of a series of discussions we had with Chris Williams, a developer relations manager at HashiCorp. If you missed the first two parts, let's do a quick recap. In part one of our discussions with Chris, episode 229, we talked about how Chris started off as a gamer who got into technology and worked his way all the way up to enterprise architect. We talked about what the role of an enterprise architect is, how that relates to a T-shaped engineer, and a little bit about startup life. In part two of our discussions in episode 230, Chris shared with us how he learned how to interview and some of the interesting questions he likes to ask people in different types of interviews. We also talk about his involvement in V Brownbag, why he got involved originally, what V Brownbag actually is, and what keeps him involved. We also talked about Chris's involvement in other communities, how he's started user groups in his local area, specific to AWS technologies, and how he's maintained that group through the pandemic and beyond. The other thing we talked about in episode 230 was an unexpected job opportunity that came Chris's way as a result of all this community involvement. This week in part three, we're going to dig into the role at HashiCorp a little bit more. And I want to pose this question as we start. Have you ever tried to talk someone out of hiring you in an interview? It might seem counterintuitive, but we're going to hear Chris's story about this very thing. We'll also talk about how Chris considers himself a player coach in his role today and what that actually means. We'll talk about what good and bad managers are and a little bit about leadership. Chris also shares with us how leaving on good terms can come back to you and provide a benefit later. And he'll talk about what he might consider doing next in his career. There it is, listeners. And here we go with part three and the conclusion of our series of interviews with Chris Williams. So let's talk about the job at Hashi. You you mentioned that you spoke to your current boss who asked you, how'd you like to do some of the things you're doing already during the day? What exactly is developer relations, developer advocacy? Those seem like hard to understand terms sometimes. It, it is. It is. <laughs> and, and I'm still struggling with it too, because like I said, when I'm, when I was doing it for free, it was a lot easier to, to not care about it. 
So now I have to ask questions like, am I doing a good job? How am I being measured to, to determine if I'm doing a good job? At HashiCorp, we have these things called impact hours. And impact hours are related to how many people you've spoken to, the number of views that your YouTube post got or whatever like that. And if you do something in person, there's, there's a whole matrix. And we add things into this spreadsheet that keeps track of all that stuff. For me, developer advocacy is going out into the community and talking about the technology. It's, it's, it's what we do on V Brown Bag. Here's a problem. I'm an engineer. I'm going to fix the problem in front of you, and I'm going to get you excited about the technology because this is something that I think is really cool. I could not be a DA at a company that I didn't like the tools or the products. I'm not a used car salesman. I'm not a salesman, period. Uh, I've, I've been in a lot of pre-sales calls, but I'm never, I've never been an SE. So if I didn't believe that the tool was fun, then I wouldn't, then I wouldn't have come on. If I didn't see, you know, like Terraform sitting at the confluence of all of these different clouds. I mean, I, I am an AWS hero, but Terraform is a multi-cloud tool. So now I can play in Azure. Now I can play in GCP. Now I can play in VMC on GCP or VMC. Yeah, it's, it's, it's super fun and that excites me. So if it didn't excite me, I wouldn't have been a good DA. Right. And in your case, it's not that you're a salesperson, but you are looking to influence hearts and minds and get people excited about the technology because you right. are kind of like the face of the tech. Hey, this is cool stuff. Here's how you can actually help you solve a problem. Right. And so that's exactly what I've been doing with V Brown Bag. When I was studying for the VMware stuff, it was just cool stuff that I was enjoying. Might as well record it, do it live. Then I started studying for cloud and then I got into Kubernetes and then I got into, you know, DevOps and, and containers and CI CD pipelines and all that stuff. And now it's Git and Python and GitHub and pull requests and all those shenanigans. And I just, I love doing it and I love learning in public and HashiCorp wants to pay me to learn their stuff in public. Doesn't sound like a bad gig. It does not sound like a bad gig at all, does it? Now you don't have to manage people, right? This is an individual contributor role. No, no, it, it is a manager role. I, I do have reports. Okay. This is the first time that I've been a manager since my first job in New England. Uh, my first job in New England was as a manager of a small software company, and it burnt out of me the desire to be a manager, primarily because I was a horrible, horrible manager. And I can, and I admit that looking back on, I was young and I did not know what it meant to be a good manager. And so I was a manager and I was terrible at it and I got fired for it and, and deservedly got fired for it. I mean, I was awful. Looking back on it, I'm like, yeah, I would have done the same thing to myself. If Al is listening, I apologize, Al. And uh, then I was an IC for the next 25 years. So I was an IC for you know all these different gigs, both as an FTE and as an IC at the SIs. That's a lot of acronyms, isn't it? IC is Individual Contributor, SI, Systems Integrator. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Sorry. It's okay. It's, we've we've it's, defined a lot of those okay. abbreviations, right. so it's okay. And during that journey, I had innumerable managers. Some of them were stinkers. Most of them were stinkers. A lot of them were really, really good. Some of them were really good. My favorite manager that I ever had, her name is Heather, uh, Heather Hausman. She's the best manager slash Unix administrator slash enterprise architect that I'd ever run into. She's a triple threat. She's absolutely amazing. She retired. We still chat though. And I wanted to be like Heather. I wanted to 
do the things that Heather did. And, and, and I aspired to being as magnificent as she is. So when I was talking to Melissa about it, I was initially very reluctant to accept a manager position. I didn't, I didn't want to do it. And uh, we spent about three hours going back and forth, me trying to explain to her why she shouldn't hire me and her trying to explain to me why she should hire me. And one of the things that I told her, there's a quote by Steve Jobs, and it says, no good manager ever wants to be a manager. They just see that there's nobody else qualified to take the position and they step up because they know that there's no better option. And I, and I very much ascribe to that. I think that that's true. People that want to become managers simply because they want to have people underneath them are you know people that have a power trip or whatever. They, they value themselves based upon the number of headcount that they have rolling up to them. And that's, I've had plenty of managers be that with me underneath them. And so I never wanted to be that. And so I had this long conversation with Melissa about that. And um, we, we came to consensus. And so I, so I came on. I think probably if people feel like they have people beneath them, then that's that's a an automatic clue that uh, they're probably not not good in a managerial role if they. Yeah, it, it even sounds wrong. I just I just say my team. They don't they don't report to me. They're my team. Mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm a manager, but only in so far as I sign expense reports and and timesheets. Actually, we don't even do timesheets. I'm a player coach. I do this. I do the exact same things that they do. I just also happen to, uh, you know, approve their expense reports. That's an interesting role. I've I've been asked about being a player coach and and the the intricacies of that, and I have no experience in it because I've never been asked to do that. I'm in a first time managerial role right now, like I think right around three months in. Oh, I mean you both. Hey, you guys should talk. <laughs> yeah, maybe we should talk about this. Maybe we yeah. ha- should have a separate episode about just this. Maybe I should start a a, a brand new podcast called Nerd Managers. <laughs> it's an interesting situation to be in because I find that being a manager is just the meetings of being a manager consume half the hours of my week. Mm-hmm. And I can't imagine also doing the job that the people who are reporting to me like also do <laughs> in, in that time frame. I, it's just mind-boggling that you're able to do that. Well, okay, so two things. One, I don't have the same number of impact hour requirements as my teammates do. Hmm. So, so they have X and I have X divided by two because I do have managerial duties that I have to perform and everything. So, so my, my expectations aren't as high as theirs for the actual day-to-day stuff. And two, there, there's a, a distinction between being a leader and being a manager. As an EA, I've had to be a, a leader for literally every gig that I've ever done. It's, I've, I've run teams with hundreds of folks underneath me, around me, next to me, which, whichever, whichever angle they need to be to be on my team, but not like in a, in a weird hierarchy. And, and there's a term for it too. It's a leader le- leading from the front. I'm never going to ask somebody else to do something that I'm not willing to do myself. So when I'm an e when I'm doing like EA stuff, I'm in there in the trenches doing the exact same things that everybody else is doing. I just also have to spend some of my time working with the board and working with the the C-suite and, and all that stuff to make sure that everything is happening to fruition at all of the other different layers too. 
I'm not, I'm not doing the exact same day-to-day grind that the SEs are doing and all that stuff, but I'm never going to not be willing to do it myself. From the manager perspective, there's, there's the one-on-ones, there's the communication, which my psychology background helps with that. That, that seems to work out pretty well. And, and then there's expense reports. Um, it's just making sure that the team is working well. And DA life is a little bit different. There's, there's not a lot of, there, there is teamwork where we all work together as teams, but there's a lot of work that's also very solo. So like, you know, creating your own videos or writing your own blog, there's, there's, there's collaboration at the end, but it's not like the team all pushing on the same project. And you, if you don't do your thing, then the other people can't do their thing. So, so there's, there's more autonomy, but still, but still teamwork and camaraderie. You've experienced the stinker manager and you've experienced (laughs) some good ones. Yep. And I love the fact that you spent a whole lot of time trying to convince your current boss why you shouldn't be a manager. So Hmm. what does a good manager look like? Heather Houseman. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So a a good manager has knowledge of what the people and the people on the team do. Maybe, maybe they can't do it as well as they can do it, but they understand the things they can ask the right questions or, or they can have enough humility to be able to ask stupid questions and not worry about having to be the boss or whatever. They, they have empathy to be able to put themselves into the shoes of everybody to understand what they understand, what they know, but more importantly, what they don't know. So my team has people from all different walks of life. And I've not walked in their shoes and they've not walked in my shoes. So when I'm talking to them, I try to always make sure that I'm not pre-injecting my biases into conversations and that I'm, that I'm trying to actively listen. And I have to be aware of that, that as humans, we always pre-inject our biases because, because we've lived our life. And so we are biased creatures and we have to be able to recognize that, to understand that that's a, a filter over which you have to try to look through. It's interesting that as as we get further into our careers, we experience different managerial styles, different managerial personalities, things that we aspire to, things that we think, oh, I don't maybe have the personality for that, but here's my take on that, those kinds of things. It, it sounds like you, you're trying to put your spin on what you experienced from kind of an amalgamation of good managers. Yeah. You know, it's it's a mixture of the things that the good ones do and trying to amplify that in myself and minimizing the, the, the crappy things that the bad ones did and, and making sure that I never do those things. Don't pop a bunch of pills and then show up to a meeting, you know, completely uh, zonked out of your gourd, Nicole. Uh, what? <clears throat> anyway. <laughs> Might have to cut that part out. What? No, absolutely. <laughs> Leave it in. If she's listening, she was terrible. She knows it. That's awesome. oh boy okay john uh, you go it's not that dissimilar from how we learn to be good as an individual contributor is it you watch other people in the way that they work and and maybe you can't work exactly that same way and maybe your brain doesn't work exactly that way but you can bring your own strengths to maybe a similar organizational process or a similar brainstorming process or a similar assistance process or a similar leadership process. Mm-hmm. Again, not a question. It just, just struck me that what you're describing is something that that's a skill that 
that all of us can develop, whether or not we're managers. We can we can look at the ways that people work, look at our peers, the people that we report to and say, here's the way this person works that I really like. And here's the things that I think that I need to avoid in myself. Here's what I'm going to adopt for myself. Here's my spin and my take and my version of that, whether it's being an individual contributor or being a manager. I think the unfortunate reality of manager life is that there isn't a good, I have not run into a company that trains to be a manager. Like I have very rarely seen a good young manager. And I'm not saying it's because people have the inability. I, th- I think it's because we, d- we just don't train. We don't, we don't have a good me- mechanism for it. And the way that you become a good manager is through trial and error and watching a bu- and being under a bunch of crappy managers and then being under a couple of good managers and figuring out what works and what doesn't work. And then, and then proceeding that way, being a good engineer means that you get promoted. And then you get promoted again, and then you get promoted again. Then all of a sudden you're a manager and then you become a victim of the Peter principle because are you guys familiar with the Peter principle promoted to your level of incompetence. Yes. Being promoted to your level of incompetence. So you get up to being a manager and all of a sudden you suck at being a manager, but nobody then demotes you back to doing the thing that you were good at. They'd leave you at just being a, a sucky manager until you, until you stop sucking at it. And that's, that's sad because you were great at being an architect or an EA or what, or whatever like that. So I never, one of the reasons why I didn't want to become a manager was because I did not want to become a victim of the Peter principle. So after me and Melissa talked for at length about that, I said, okay, well, if I stink, you have to tell me because I don't, I don't want to be reviled as a manager when I could be just a, an amazing knock it out of the park DA but you know, a, a, a crappy half manager. So, so have that knowledge in your head so that if I need to be demoted, I'm perfectly fine with it. And not a lot of people say that. No, they don't. <laughs> they should. <laughs> well, that's a little bit of self-knowledge right there. You, you know yourself and you know what you don't want and you communicated it to the person who has the power to help you get rid of the things you don't want should that situation arise. Right. Or go back to my previous gig because they, they still call me. <laughs> hey, do you hate being a DA yet? Come back. Well, maybe you can do it in three-year shifts. You know what? I've very rarely left any company like on bad terms. I've Most of the folks that I've ever worked with, I super love. I, I try not to leave companies on bad terms because everybody's just trying to make it work. There's there's no There's nobody that like maliciously wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to be the villain and I'm going to make everybody hate me at this place. And I'm going to make Chris Williams life miserable. I, I don't, I don't, I don't believe that. So I get along with most of the folks that I've worked with, even the ones that weren't the easiest people to get along with because they just had their own way of communicating. And, and sometimes it rubbed other people the wrong way. So, you know, I, I love most of the folks that I've worked with. There's a couple I didn't. So when you're, on your way out, you've made the decision or you're thinking that you're getting that itch or you're bored. Mm-hmm. How is it that you go about making that exit and, or parting ways, ensuring that it is on good terms? Well, I'll, I'll use the most recent one as, as, a, as a good example. Um, the, the way that the company was going and the way that I was going, they, they weren't matching anymore. 
and the offer that that HashiCorp made was was amazing. I had a I had a very long talk with my boss at the time, and I said they want to pay me to do during the day for money what I was doing for free at night. Literally, just having fun all day long. And and my my boss was like, God bless, go knock yourself out. If if it doesn't work out, come on back. They 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 made an offer I couldn't refuse. And my my boss said, and and that almost to this to the same note happened at the previous gig. When I left Green Pages to go to Worldwide, I told my boss there, Jonesy, the offer that Worldwide had made me. And he said, if you don't take it, I will fire you so that you have to take it. And if and if it doesn't work out, you can come back. That's so cool. Yeah. That's a quality of a good manager, I think. Oh yeah, he was he was absolutely great. Do what's best for the person. I brought him to Worldwide. He is now working at Worldwide uh in in a role that I that I had there. So it, it all comes around. If if you if you give, it comes back tenfold. It comes back tenfold. Oh yeah. Is that another episode title? I think it is. <laughs> <laughs> One of the questions I like to ask people, Chris, is how do you, based on all the experiences you've had, decide what might be next in your career? Oh, geez. I have, I have no idea. There are like seven different branches of things that I would love to try next. If, if I were independently wealthy, I would start over again as a junior developer. I would love to just like try my hand at that and figure out how that, how that feels. Is that true? I don't know. If I was independently wealthy, I'd, I mean, I'd, I'd give it, a, I'd give it a, a year or two, and then I'd go back. I mean, I'm never going to get out of this gig. If I like won the lottery tomorrow, I'd still probably do this, just less of it, I, and and not have to do it like for any one particular company. I'd still do V Brown Bag. I'd still write in my blog, and I'd still you know go to the conferences and and do the hero interviews and stuff like that. That that wouldn't even change, even if I wasn't working for a company. Um, so developer would be super fun. I used to teach martial arts classes, so that would that would be a fun thing to get back into again. I really enjoyed, you know, teaching kids kung fu. Now you teach technologists kung fu. Now I teach technology kung fu. Exactly. How to get good. <laughs> I'm sorry. What was the question? <laughs> How do you decide what's next in your career? I I try to find the things that I stink at that I want to get better at. And then I try to figure out how to turn that into a career. It's very parallel to the, I want to throw myself into a situation that's uncomfortable until I break my brain. Yep, exactly. Yeah, it's, um, I'm, I'm just wash, rinse, repeating that. Whatever I feel uncomfortable, I am most comfortable when I'm uncomfortable. So I haven't stopped being uncomfortable with presenting. I still get the butterflies. I still, it still kills me to go up in front of people. The, the larger the audience, the worse it gets. So I'm going to, I'm going to be doing that for a long time. I don't ever see me getting bored of that because I don't ever see that becoming like old hat because there's always something new to learn. There's always something new to present on. So I'm, I'm never going to stop learning. So why, why would I stop talking about it? And there's always a different way to present it, right? Exactly. It feels like there is, there is another element there, something about being excited about it. Mm-hmm. Not just uncomfortable with it, but also excited and interested in it. Yeah, if if it was something that made me uncomfortable and I didn't enjoy it, that that wouldn't work. It's it has to be what what's something that I don't enjoy? Mowing the lawn. If if uh if if it had to do with lawn care, I'm I'm completely out. No, I I feel like I've I I don't know you deeply and personally, but I I feel like if that was something that you had to do, you'd find a way to audit, automate yourself out of it. Yeah. 
at scale. Chris at scale. I'm already 6'8". I can't scale out any further. That's ridiculous. You can't scale <laughs> up any further. You could scale out. I could, I could get a lot fatter. That's true. I've, with all those Funyuns. But you don't want that. You don't want that. I'm trying to lose weight now. <laughs> I mean, on the surface, one would think that being excited and being uncomfortable are inversely proportional and not directly proportional. If I put those together, it almost seems like they wouldn't normally intersect. So that's an interesting construct. I'm I'm so weird. <laughs> no, no, I just it's just interesting to me, that's all. No, I, I'm I'm saying it for myself. I am very definitely weird. More of us need to be weird that way, right? Here's this thing that I'm really interested and excited by, but I'm not good at it yet. So right. now I need to put the work in to get good at it and decide if I want that to be a new part of my career. And and I like running into people like that and and helping them out too um there is a cloud engineer at worldwide uh, her name is shala warner she's a wonderful wonderful human being when i first met her she pinged me on twitter and asked me like how do i become a cloud engineer she had had a networking background but she wanted to get in the cloud and i gave her a i want to say like a six-month learning plan and and then i said i said good luck and then I, I, I surreptitiously watched her and I jumped on her Twitch streams every now and then. And she took that six month learning plan and knocked it out live, like with like learning live the, the exact same way that I did it. And she, she took it out in like two months, two, three months. And, and then, and then asked me for more. And then I immediately hired her. I was like, I need her on my team. She's friggin' amazing. And, and now she's a cloud engineer at worldwide working on the same projects that I, that I was working on doing Terraform, doing CICD pipelines, learning Jenkins, doing and, and, and talking about it live and showing her work and everything like that. And she's, she's the same kind of like, it's uncomfortable, but I'm excited about it. So I'm going to do it. That's really cool. Yeah. On she, stage. You guys should get her on too. She's amazing. Yeah. Always open to recommendations. Hungry for content. Hungry for content. Well, we are excited, but we are uncomfortable that it has to come to a close. So we want to say thank you so much, Chris Williams, for joining us. And I'm sure we'll be following your progress. Is that kind of stalkery? <laughs> no, no. Uh, how can people reach out to you if they want to get in touch? If you Google Mistwire, M-I-S-T-W-I-R-E, I am literally like the first three pages of hits on on there. Um, but if you want to, you can... You can uh, Find me on Twitter. Actually, anywhere that Mistwire is a thing, that's that's me. I am Mistwire everywhere. Twitter, Blue Sky, Mastodon, all the things, and and it's Wait. my and it's my website. So you can reach me there too. Now, yeah, we're we just need to rush to uh, to end the episode so we can ask you for invites to Blue Sky or. Oh yeah, yeah, I can get you that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thanks again, Chris. We appreciate your time. My pleasure, guys. Thanks a bunch. This was really fun. Likewise. Yeah, it was great. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Would you sign up to be a player coach after hearing this interview with Chris? We've had a couple guests on the show that have talked about the role of the player coach before that seems to be part manager, 
part individual contributor, and those are David Babbitt and Shalvi Waklu. We'll put the links in the episode so you can go back and check those out. What's different about what Chris shared here is that there were specific impact hours. So the company understood and gave him set expectations for how much time he should spend managing people and how much time he needed to be making deliverables as an individual contributor. And he even mentioned that the amount of individual contributor work was less for him specifically because he had those additional management responsibilities. And I think that's an interesting lesson that we should carry forward into interviews. Maybe the role does say manager, but it's really a player coach. We should dig into those details if we're going to apply for that role and find out what's the split between time spent managing, time spent producing deliverables as an individual contributor, and how how will I be measured on that? Will I be expected to have the same output as any other individual contributor? If the answer is yes, then maybe you don't want to take that specific job. And perhaps it comes back to some of those job leveling lessons that Shalvi Vaklu shared in her interview and the specific standards put into those. That story about trying to talk his boss out of hiring him for a manager role was really interesting. Chris mentioned that he had been a manager before and was actually fired because he was horrible at it. And so he was hesitant to take that on again. But what I really liked about the his approach, not only trying to talk his manager out of it, but the reason he agreed to do it was that he needed his manager to know that if he wasn't doing a good job, he wanted to know about it and he wanted her to demote him if he wasn't the right fit. And she agreed to that. That's something she's going to be watching for. That's something he's going to be mindful of. And so that gave him some comfort in that his manager understands what he wants and what he doesn't want. If he's not effective, then put him in a different type role where he can be effective. Do we have those kinds of conversations with our managers, whether it's on the way into the company or during a transition to a slightly different set of responsibilities. Maybe that's also a good time to really talk about something like this. Something that stood out to me was the experience as an enterprise architect, in my mind, counted as relatable experience for management because he was managing all these other teams and communication flows Maybe not the people directly, but there is a form of management there or some principles of management that that can apply and definitely relate to managing direct reports. And when we, if someone does go into management, you've probably heard it from different guests on the show, they take the examples they've seen, what they would call good managers, and Chris points one out in our discussion. And they try to adapt that to their own personal style. We're probably not going to do things exactly the way others have, but to be able to see what good looks like and maybe even what bad looks like so that you can figure out how to do it, especially to Chris's point about the absence of training on really how to be a manager, then that might be the way to go. That might be your training or at least some of it. How do we look at the things that we just aren't good at? I love Chris's attitude of trying to turn the things he stinks at into a career. But what this really points to is a love for learning. 
He wants to learn the things that he doesn't know and putting himself in those uncomfortable situations are really what teaches him those lessons and new skills until, as he said, breaks his brain so that he's no longer afraid of it, helps him get past and face the fear. This is also the sign of a generalist, someone who is staying a generalist. I would say it is a sign of someone who is a superb generalist. And it really hits a lot of the points in Range by David Epstein. If you haven't read that book, I would highly encourage you to go read that book about how generalists triumph in a highly specialized world. Because oftentimes, experience in many, many different areas allows us to apply the deep structural similarities to a totally different domain and makes us an even better specialist than perhaps someone who has only ever been a hyper-specialist in that one area because of that relatable experience, for example. So after listening to this, if you're on the fence about being a manager, did it change your mind? Is player coach the natural in-between step before you take on a full people management role? Maybe it is, but I definitely would make sure there's structure in there like Chris had. I hope you've enjoyed this series of episodes, and we'll see you next time. Just a reminder, we'd like people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter, at NerdJourney. Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm John White, at BJourneyman, for Nick Cordy, at NetworkNerd underscore, signing off. Adios. Adios.